Hello, it's John Dennis on Monday the 8th of March. Today, the big winners, the weepy speeches and the frocks. We've got the lowdown on the Oscars. Well, the time has come. Catherine Bigelow! In other news today, Iraqis have braved bombs and rockets to go to the polls. The turnout in the poll was expected to be as high as 70%, and that was indeed the, uh, the figures that were coming to us uh, when the polls closed. A case involving rendition and torture should be held in secret. That's what the government's arguing at the Court of Appeal today. Parliament has never passed any law about civil claims being heard completely in secret. So the lawyers representing these men are saying that this is such an attack on our way of justice. The government maintains its silence over John Venables, despite the drip-drip of fresh allegations about how James Bulger's killer breached his parole. Icelanders reject a deal to repay Britain and the Netherlands billions of pounds in savings after the collapse of the Save Bank. And the Archbishop of Cardiff tells us why the Catholic Church wants to be heard in the lead-up to the general election. Probably in recent years, there's been an overemphasis on the uh, place of the state as against civil society. That's putting it, you know, rather bluntly. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk First, our top story. James Cameron's 3D blockbuster Avatar and Catherine Bigelow's Iraq war thriller The Hurt Locker were the films expected to sweep the board at the Oscars. The Guardian's film team have been burning the midnight oil to tell us what happened at the 2010 Academy Awards. And the winner is... Well, the time has come. Catherine Bigelow! The Hurt Locker trounced Avatar 6-3 at the Oscars, making history as it marched to Best Picture. The Hurt Locker director, Catherine Bigelow, became the first woman ever to win Best Director for her superb handling of the tense standoffs between men and explosive devices in her Iraq-set military drama. Avatar, directed by Bigelow's ex-husband James Cameron, went home with its tail slightly between its legs, claiming just three Oscars for visual effects, art direction and, in a slight surprise, cinematography. There were no surprises in the acting categories, as Jeff Bridges and Sandra Bullock took the main awards for Crazy Heart and The Blind Side, while Christoph Waltz and Monique swept the supporting fields for Inglorious Bastards and Precious. In a safe ceremony typified by some interpretive dances and lukewarm gags between hosts Steve Martin and Alec Baldwin, it was left to indie film Precious to provide more history, a frisson of controversy and the most moving moments. First, I would like to thank the Academy for showing that it can be about the performance and not the politics. I want to thank Miss Hannah McDaniel. I'm sorry I'm drawing a blank right now, but uh, I thank everyone. Precious scriptwriter Jeffrey Fletcher became the first African-American in the 82-year history of the Oscars to win a writing award. Perhaps the biggest surprise of the night was in the foreign film category where Argentinian film The Secret of Her Eyes won. It did so by beating French favourite A Profit and Cannes winner The White Ribbon, both widely admired by critics and viewers around the world. Success eluded British contenders Colin Firth and Kerry Mulligan. It was left to costume designer Sandy Powell to fly the flag, winning for the young Victoria. And Ray Beckett, who took an Oscar for sound mixing on The Hurt Locker, 
comes from Peckham. There's always a heartwarming story at the Oscars. Jason Solomons, bleary-eyed, going to bed. And there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash film, including a special edition of The Guardian's Film Weekly podcast. Also on the website today, The Guardian's Science Weekly podcast. You can hear scientist Simon Singh on his protracted libel defence. The article was in the Guardian newspaper in the comments section back in April 2008 and also on the website. And I wrote about chiropractic and in particular, should chiropractors be treating children for conditions like asthma and colic and ear infections and so on? Um, I thought there was a lack of evidence. The British Chiropractic Association didn't agree with that and they sued me for libel. I think one of the extraordinary things is that that was almost two years ago. And we're still at what's called a preliminary stage. In fact, last week, or the week before last, we were at the Court of Appeal arguing about the meaning of the article. And then maybe in two years' time, we'll actually have the trial and and sort it out. And one of the big problems with libel is the enormous time involved and therefore also the the enormous costs involved. And there's more from Simon Singh in Science Weekly at guardian.co.uk slash audio. The government has refused to comment on reports that John Venables, one of the killers of the toddler James Bulger, was returned to prison for alleged child pornography offences. The Guardian's Peter Walker has the story. The government isn't officially saying anything uh, about this. They're recognising the fact that this gradual release of information through the press is very, very difficult for James Bulger's parents. And they've acknowledged that. But they're saying that they can't confirm or deny anything for two reasons. Um, partly because there's this uh, anonymity order, which means that neither of James Bulger's killers can be uh, named. But also they're making the point that if Venables, if subsequently charged with anything over this, then speaking about it on the record now could uh, prejudice a future trial. And that's irrespective of the seriousness of these offences, because Jack Straw, the Justice Secretary, has said that they are serious allegations. They are, and that's... he, he it almost felt like he was slightly pressured into saying that because there had to be a reason why Venables was brought back to uh, uh, jail. Um, but they're very clear that as things stand now, they can't say uh, uh, anything more. Obviously, if Venables is actually charged with a the crime, then this could change. Will pressure from James Bulger's mother have any effect on uh, the government's decision to reveal more information about this? Because Jack Straw said he's going to meet her at some point. It's a tricky one. James Bulger's mother has, ever since the trial, she's believed that the two boys should have not been given new names and they should have been kept in prison. So to an extent, her position hasn't really changed. And there's a lot of sympathy for the way that she thinks. Uh, Chris uh, Grayling, the Conservative uh, Home Affairs uh, spokesman, has gone on the record to say that he understands that the position for James Bulger's parents is very difficult, given what he calls a drip-drip of information through the press. But he um, essentially agrees with Jack Straw. He says that... Given the way things are now, there's not really an awful lot the government can say. Peter Walker. My name's John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily. Turnout was expected to be high in Iraq's parliamentary election yesterday, despite the violence that killed 25 people in Baghdad, from where Martin Chuloff reports. The day started with a barrage of rockets, a barrage of explosions. We hadn't heard anything like that in Baghdad for a couple of years. It was relentless for a couple of hours leading up to the poll booths opening and uh, For an hour or so afterwards, there would have been at least uh, 50 or so mortars landing, mainly in Sunni areas. Uh, There were quite a few uh, explosions around the city as well, Uh, a a few house explosions, a few roadside devices, and 
We've had a uh, look into the hospitals today and they, they're reporting the highest daily casualty rates they've had for a long time. Is the fact that so many Iraqis braved the bombs and rockets a sign of optimism in this election? It's certainly been perceived that way. The turnout in the poll was expected to be as high as 70%, and that was indeed the, uh, the figures that were coming to us uh, when the polls closed. So the, the fact that people were prepared to brace this onslaught and to, to continue on and, uh, and go about and carry out some form of a democratic process was certainly testament to the fact that they wanted to force some change. The, the time that we spent with, uh, with voters around the electorate actually reinforced that. People were saying that uh, we're not going to be deterred by this anymore. We need, to get, we need to get on with things. We need to build institutions. We need to elect new leaders. So all in all, it would appear to have been quite a successful day in terms of the electoral process and in terms of people wanting to, to, uh, to play a role and have their voice heard. And is the incumbent Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki likely to remain in power? His list was favourite to, uh, to do best before the election. It was indeed polling better than his two main rivals, a Shia-led secular list and a Shia theological list. It, it will be uh, a long period of horse trading afterwards to determine whether he could indeed emerge from a pack of, of many people who could become prime minister in this country. And that would depend on the, on the bridges that he's burned during his tenure as prime minister. Uh, it could depend on all sorts of other factors as well. Even if his list does perform as well as was expected, it does not necessarily mean that he would become prime minister. And I think all of the pundits here, all, the, all, the, all of the analysts are left guessing at this point. Um, that's only going to become clear within the next week or so. Martin Chuloff in Baghdad. The Roman Catholic Church has joined the pre-election fray, publishing a document which it says identifies our society's values. It's called Choosing the Common Good and it criticises the behaviour of MPs and financial institutions. It warns that citizenship is being overlooked while people are being alienated by a selfish society. The Archbishop of Cardiff, the Most Reverend Peter Smith, told The Guardian's religious affairs correspondent, Riazat Butt, what advice the Church would be giving to Catholics during the election campaign. Well, I mean, we won't, as Catholic bishops, be telling Catholics how to vote. We never have, and we never will. What we're proposing to them is some, some thoughts on which they should reflect, and nearer the election, we'll produce a much, much shorter one-page thing, saying, well, when, when you go to the hustings, when you're questioning candidates, uh, these are the sort of questions you might ask. You know, uh, are you prepared to support marriage, and in what way? Because it's not for us bishops to say how marriage should be supported in terms of tax regimes and all the rest of it, because we're, we're not competent to do that. And again, there'll be quite perfectly legitimate debate, even amongst uh, Catholics and non-Catholics, on that. So this is our, as it were, this is giving some uh, our people and anyone who'd like to read it some thoughts. These are the thoughts things you might reflect upon. Uh, beyond that, uh, I please God, we will all vote as individuals. We won't say who we voted for or who we're going to vote for because we don't want to uh, use our position as bishops to to influence others in in, in that wrong sense. Uh, so uh, yes, this is our uh, this is something. I don't think there's anything particularly special about this coming election in principle. 
Um, I mean, we, Not even after the expenses well, scandal? I was just going to say, we've had a rather torrid time in, in recent years with the expenses scandal, with the recession, the economic crisis uh, particularly. So, I mean, in that sense, yes, it, it, it's, it'll be a rather more dramatic one because very dramatic things have happened. But in principle, there's no difference between this election and any other because at every election we have the opportunity to um, elect a government which we're happy with and, and, and with which we're happy that they have a, a good vision of what society should become. But again, as we've said, governments can't do everything. They have a part to play. But everyone has a part to play, and, and, and uh, this is where some, I think probably in recent years, there's been an overemphasis on the, state, on the uh, place of the state as against civil society. That's putting it, you know, rather bluntly. Um, and what we're trying to say is that civil society is the heart of, of, of a good community. The Archbishop of Cardiff talking to Riazat Butt. Hello, I'm Tom Clark and presenter of Politics Weekly. My co-presenter Allegra Stratton and I are taking our show on the road in the run-up to the election. First stop will be Manchester with our top columnists Polly Toynbee, Michael White and John Harris. Come along and hear the programme being recorded and pitch questions to them yourselves. Tickets are £5 and to reserve places email us at politics.weekly at guardian.co.uk. In a referendum in Iceland, 98% voted against paying back billions of pounds to the UK and the Netherlands. The debt's because of the collapse of the savings bank IceSave. But the British government says it's still committed to getting Iceland to repay £2.3 billion. Financial reporter Simon Bowers has just returned from Reykjavik. Well, it's absolutely not a surprise. Whoever heard of anyone... um asked whether they wanted to uh, repay their debts, saying, yes, I do. If, there, if there's a half a chance of opting for no, of course they're going to do so. What is it that Icelanders object to? Well, this is a rather complicated situation, one where there's a hybrid of legal issues and macro-political pressures being brought to bear on the Icelandic people. But in the midst of it all, uh, there is an awful lot of populist anger, particularly following Alistair Darling's decision in October 2008 to uh, stick the bank behind ISAVE, Landsbanki, and the Icelandic government onto a list of officially financially sanctioned regimes alongside the likes of North Korea, Al-Qaeda, Burma, etc. Um, how will the result of this referendum affect Iceland's repayment? If you believe the Icelandic government, who have effectively boycotted the referendum themselves, they say this is a referendum about an agreement that is out of date. They are already close to hearing a, a more favourable deal from, from, from their perspective. So they will be hoping that this referendum means nothing at all. Certainly, the issue doesn't go away. I know that a lot of um, grassroots campaigners in Iceland uh, were partying hard on Saturday night as, as this result became clearer and clearer. And what kind of deals are being discussed? Well, it's, it's important to, put, uh, to isolate what are the, the, the key 
uh, points of dispute here. In a way, we're talking about very, very big numbers. There was about £6 billion deposited by UK savers in iSave. About £4 billion of those were retail deposits. Uh, that was deposits that were made by ordinary savers who believed that, they, that, that their deposits were, came with a guarantee partly from the UK FSA-sponsored scheme and partly from the Icelandic government-sponsored scheme. That's the Icelandic element has proven to be inadequate. And for that reason, the, the UK Treasury stepped in and offered, well, forced the Icelandic government effectively to take a, take a loan to cover their guarantee. And it's that loan it, it, and a similar loan from the Dutch government that is at issue. So, I mean, that's if, if you've stayed with that explanation, it's, it's, a, it's a very sort of involved technical story and certainly a, a difficult one to have a, an emotive referendum on. Simon Bowers. The government is attempting today to have a case about torture held entirely behind closed doors. Some lawyers say that to do so would override ancient principles of English law. Afwa Hirsch is our legal affairs correspondent. There was already a decision in the High Court where the government asked for a case which is being held about torture claims that it could be held in secret and the High Court ruled that it could. So in this case, the people who are bringing the claim are appealing against that decision. And I'll just give you a little bit of background about who these people are. There are seven men who all claim they were subject to extraordinary rendition and held unlawfully in detention facilities, including Guantanamo Bay and Bagram Prison in Afghanistan. And they actually include Binyan Mohammed, who had that very high-profile recent case, also in the Court of Appeal, and Mozambique, um, and five other men. So today's case is really about whether their claim for damages, because of the treatment that they suffered, and which they say includes torture, whether that case should be heard in secret or in, or in open court. And uh, as you say, last November, a High Court judge said the government could have this case heard in secret. Uh, what were the reasons for that? Well, it's, it's really an extraordinary case because obviously these claims go to the heart of this government's co- cooperation with the US in the war on terror. And these men are not saying that the British government was directly responsible for their rendition and their torture and their unlawful detention. But what they're saying is that the British government was complicit. So it's, again, these claims of complicity. Um, And the reason this is a civil case is because they're claiming damages for the injuries they say they suffered. Now, in November, the High Court said that the case could be heard in secret because of the amount of evidence that has to be produced. The government says that it's got 250,000 documents that it's going to have to disclose as part of this case and that around 140,000 of those are marked secret. So what the government's saying is that it is such a, a huge exercise to produce all of these documents and to go through and declassify every single one that can be heard in open court would just be far too much work. It would take 10 years, they're saying. So on that basis, they persuaded the High Court that it just makes more practical sense for the whole case to be heard in private. Um, Obviously, on the other side, what the lawyers representing these men are saying is that that fundamentally undermines English justice. It's completely unheard of for a civil case to ever be heard completely in private before, um, and that this sets a very dangerous precedent. And crucially as well, that Parliament has never legislated 
Um, unlike in SIAC proceedings about deportation of terrorist suspects and other cases where there are already secret hearings, Parliament has never passed any law about civil claims being heard completely in secret. So the lawyers representing these men are saying that this is such an attack on our way of justice um, that it could only be done with the, express, with the express agreement of Parliament. Afwa Hirsch, Phil Maynard, Jason Phipps and Tim Maybe with the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. And my name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.